If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Many Bible expositors believe that this section of Romans uh, is the most important passage of Scripture in the Bible. It is the heart of the Bible. It is important. It is absolutely critical. That's why for the last several weeks, we have read the entire text responsively from 21 through 31, even though I've been dealing for some time with the verses that are in there. But it's important to understand this as a unit is a critical passage of Scripture. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I began the final paragraph of this section of Romans 3. And I said that it contains three conclusions or implications of the gospel. Conclusions from the gospel or implications of the gospel. Uh, we can express them by saying that the doctrine of justification through faith in Jesus Christ by his grace, number one, excludes boasting. We saw that in verses 27 and 28. You cannot boast about coming to Christ because God in his sovereign efficacious grace draws you unto him. It is God who is the author and the finisher of our salvation. There's nothing we can boast about. Even our faith is a gift that is given to us. And then secondly, we talked about this last week, that the, this way of salvation, this, doctor, this doctrine of That is through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Established in verses 21 through 26, but strictly speaking, there's nothing we can not draw from. show the law to be worthless and if so doesn't that mean that your gospel is false uh, aren't we obliged to reject any doctrine that would nullify the revealed law of God and Paul's reply is that the gospel of grace 
does not nullify God's law. And he uses a very strong term here. Uh, the, uh, the translation, by no means, in the uh, ESV, uh, is translated, God forbid, in the King James Version. It's a very, very strong negative. No way. You know, I mean, if we were translated, it'd be, ain't no way, dude. Couldn't happen. That ain't going to happen. Um, if, if that were true, it would be a false gospel that Paul is preaching, but it's not true. The doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone does not nullify the law of God. Paul says, really, it establishes the law of God and is, in fact, the only thing that could establish the law of God. So here's our text. Paul asks the question, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. There are two ways in which this objection to the gospel uh, may be raised. One is really answered later on in the letter. I'm going to state it here just for completeness because uh, what Paul is dealing here is not sanctification, but justification. But if I only dealt with the justification, I mean, every Baptist sermon is supposed to have three points at a poem. I've only got two points. I've got no poem. If I just did justification, it would be a one-point sermon. Work, work with me here, people, okay? So we're going to talk about it just for a moment, just for the sake of completeness. The first and the most obvious objection concerns the imagined negative impact of the teaching of salvation by grace on the Christian life. In Romans 6, Paul will talk about this error at, at some length. And he will say, he will ask the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer will be the same as here. By no means. God forbid. In Galatians, he deals with the problem at even greater length. And there he imagines someone who says, let us use our freedom to indulge the flesh. I mean, after all, we're saved by grace. Let's just sin a whole bunch. Let's indulge the flesh. Let's sin all that we can because the more we sin, the more grace we will get. We don't have to keep the law of God to be saved, so there's no reason to even think about it. Uh, let's indulge ourselves. That's usually the argument you get from the Arminian when you propose the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that God's elect are saved for all of eternity. Oh, if that were true, they say, well, we'd just sin a lot. We'd just, if, if you don't have to worry about falling from grace, then you'd just sin all the time. Uh, in reality, it's pretty easy to see what's wrong with that argument. There is first a psychological error. That is, it is wrong psychologically if there were no other reason. It assumes that the only motivation for right moral conduct is the fear of hell or of losing heaven. When in point of fact, actually those are probably the least significant motivations. It's like the people who assume that to be satisfied on a job 
The only thing you have to have is money. When all of the studies that have been done say, no, money is way down the list of what it takes to really give you satisfaction in your job. Of course, money is important. We all have to eat. We all have to pay our bills. But really, uh, feelings of personal worth, being part of something that is bigger than we are, respect, pride in the company, hope for advancement, all of those rank higher in every survey that has ever been done than money. Uh, and the highest motivation for godly conduct does not come from fear of hell, but from love of God. We want to live a life that is pleasing to God because we love God. Because God has saved us. God has imputed to us the very righteousness of Christ. God has forgiven our sins. God has done something for us that no one else could do that in all of eternity we could not earn. And so our desire to please him comes from the fact that we love him because he first loved us. Uh, moreover, we recognize that we have become a part of something that is very important, the most important thing, the advancement of the kingdom of God. Uh, there's a lot of people in America today who have forgotten that we're not here to advance a political agenda. We are here to advance the kingdom of God. We are, first of all, citizens of heaven. We want to advance the goals of that kingdom. But the second error is theological. Uh, it is the false assumption that when a person is justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that they are somehow personally unchanged by that process. Or to put it in other terms, it is supposed that you can be justified without being regenerated without being born again. And actually, the one effect never occurs without the other. All whom God has justified, he first regenerated. He made them a new creation. He has given them a new life. So the one who is justified is always striving for righteousness. Why? Because they've been regenerated. They've been born again. If a person does not strive to live a moral life according to the law of God, then the failure proves that they've neither, neither been regenerated nor justified. It is those who have been justified who have been regenerated. And so they strive to keep the law of God, even though they know they can never keep it. The important truth that we have to keep in mind here is that the justifying work of the Son and the regenerating work of the Spirit cannot be separated. None are justified who have not first been regenerated. Uh, it is for that reason that good works of love always follow justification. And that new birth are the necessary, are the good works are the necessary evidence of regeneration and justification. Good works are not the, the root of our justification. Good works are the fruit of our justification. So we must always remember that. And, and yet, as I indicated earlier, 
This is not the form of the objection that Paul is answering here in verse 31. Because the theme of Romans 3, 21 through 31 is not sanctification, as important as that is, but justification. That is achieved for us by the work of Christ. So it is not that the law is upheld by our faith in the sense that we inevitably live moral lives if we are living by faith, even though that's true, but rather that the faith Paul is describing, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith, upholds the law. It is what established the law. And that's so important. I, I want to try to state it again for a little bit different language. The point is not that the law is established somehow by what we do as Christians, by the power of the new life that God has put within us. It is rather that the Lord Jesus Christ has established the law in the process of providing salvation for us by his death on the cross. God has established the law by seeing that the demands of the law were met in the way that he provided salvation for us. So, three parts to this here. First of all, the requirements of the law. The doctrine of justification by grace through faith establishes the law by showing that the law is so high and so holy that as sinners, we could never have fulfilled it. Suppose that, that God had declared the cross of Christ to be unnecessary for salvation. Suppose he said, ah, you know, I don't think it really is going to be necessary for me to send the Son to die for sinners. Rather than saving them that way, I'll just save them the way they want to be saved, uh, by doing good deeds, by trying to keep the law. They can't keep it perfectly, of course, but I'll set up a certain standard they'll have to attain. We'll call that a passing grade. And if they get to there, then they, they will reach salvation. I'll save them. Well, obviously, if God had acted in that manner, the law would not have been established, but rather it would have been diminished or nullified. At least part of it would have been. Suppose God set a passing score at 70. You know, most of the time you're in school, 70 is a passing score. Well, isn't it evident if that were the case, he's nullified 30% of the law? If he, put a, if he put the passing score at 50, then half the law has been set aside. If it's 10%, 90% of the law would be worthless. Of course, the real scenario would have been much worse than that. Because according to the Bible, not one of us keeps even one tiny part of the law perfectly. I told you a couple of weeks ago, John Bunyan, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said that there was enough sin in the noblest prayer he had ever prayed to condemn the whole world to hell. Do you, do you think you could keep 10% of the law? Uh, most people do. They really do. Most people think that they do. Let me ask you a question. The same question that was asked of Jesus. What is the first and the greatest commandment? 
Hear, O Israel, your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second one is likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Now let me ask you this. Do you honestly think that you've ever done anything in your life that you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength in doing it? If you do, you are sadly, critically, terribly mistaken. You've never done that. I've never done that. No one's ever done that except Jesus, the greatest Christian who ever lived. Paul the apostle did not do the things that he did, loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what Bunyan meant. Every act that we do, every noble act, every virtuous act is tainted by sin because we are sinners. Even though we are justified, we are still sinful. That's what James meant when he said, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point becomes guilty of all of it. And we all fail in one point. We do not love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength when we are not committing murder and not committing adultery and not stealing. We're sinful. We, we can't do it. Everything that we do is tainted by pervasive sin. So the doctrine of justification by faith establishes the law because it shows that God takes each requirement of the law seriously. He doesn't nullify any of it, even though none of us can fulfill it. Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 7, the law is holy and righteous and good. And moreover, it remains the standard that condemns everybody if the way of fulfilling its requirements by something other than a mere human had not been found. Think about the reason for the law. The doctrine of justification by grace through faith establishes the law by showing that the punishment of sinners with death, which is required by the law, has been executed. Now, I want you to fix something firmly in your mind, okay? We're going to come back to it. You will have forgotten it by then without a doubt. But anyway, listen. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. If you do not keep every point of the law, loving God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, then what you have earned is death. Not just physical death. Eternal spiritual death. To be separated from God forever so the question that most people don't even bother to think about that Paul dealt with here in Romans 3 we looked at it is that how can God stay a just God and justify sinners how can God remain righteous and not meet out the punishment that our sin has earned for us. How is that going to be possible? 
The law had two primary functions other than regulating the civic life of the Jewish nation. First, it taught that all are sinners. We need to be taught that, of course, because the effect of sin on the mind is to blind us to our true condition. The law was given to convince men that they could not keep it. That there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. It teaches us this if we are serious about keeping his commandments. Martin Luther found that out. The more Luther tried to keep the law, the more he failed. The more he was miserable because he knew that he wasn't really keeping the law the way that God intended. Uh, secondly, again, the law taught that the punishment for sin is death. That goes back to the early chapters of Genesis. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat of it, you shall die. The Hebrew says dying, you shall die. Adam did not die immediately physically, but he was separated from God. And to be separated from God is to be dead. Ezekiel said the soul that sins will die. Throughout the Old Testament, you find that to be the case. Again, let's suppose a scenario where God said, I know that no one can keep the law, so I'll exercise my grace apart from meeting the law's requirements. I'll just love sinners into heaven. That's what the universalists say today. Well, God is a God of love, and no one will be condemned because God loves everybody into heaven. But if God had done that, he would be undermining the holy and righteous standards of the law, suggesting that it could be dispensed with. He would also have shown that the punishment for disobeying the law was arbitrary and that they could be dispensed with. I got in a lot of trouble years ago. We were in Knoxville in a store, and a lady had this uh, child. He was probably six or seven. And uh, let's say just, just for, you know, argument's sake, that the child's name was Dustin because we could imagine that. Uh, and, and the mother kept saying, the little boy was going and picking stuff up, like little boys do. And about 12 times, she said to him, Dustin, don't do that. If you do that again, I'll whip you. If you do that again, I'll whip you. And finally, I couldn't stand it any longer. And I said, ma'am, would you quit lying to that child? What? What are you talking about? I said, you know good and well you're not going to whip him. I know it. Everybody in the store knows it. So just don't lie to him anymore. That didn't, didn't go over well at all. But is God like that? Is God a God who is not righteous that gives the law and says, well, I, you know, if you don't want to keep it, no problem. I'll just, I'll just love you into heaven. The law could only be established by carrying out the penalty of spiritual death. Either we have to die or a substitute has to die, one or the other. In order for the law to be established, that should be obvious to everyone. Take a, what about a current example here? The speed limit in Athens is 30 miles an hour. Suppose you come down Decatur Pike doing 70 miles an hour, and a policeman stops you. Now, is he going to establish the law if he lets you go? 
Well, you hope so, whether it establishes the law or not, but let's don't go there. If he lets you go, then he has said this speed limit doesn't really mean anything. Or suppose he says, well, you know what? The speed limit over here really should be 50. I think it should be 70 myself, but that's another story. But if he says, well, it really should be 50 and, you know, I'm just going to, I'm not going to write you a ticket. No, the only way he can establish the law is to give you a ticket because you broke the law. And the penalty for breaking the law is a speeding ticket. If you don't have the money to pay it, you can go to jail. Or somebody else can pay it for you. It's the same spiritually. When the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, it showed that God took the law seriously. The law demanded death for infractions, for transgressions. Jesus met the demands of the law by suffering in our place. Therefore, by basing salvation on what was accomplished by the death of Jesus Christ rather than on what we could or could not do, God established the law at the same time providing a way that sinners could be saved. Romans 3.31 is a natural expression of the principle expressed in verse 26. Look up there. He, that is God, did it, that is sent Jesus to be a sacrifice of atonement, to show his righteousness at the present time. Watch this. Watch this. Watch this. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If the law demands the death of the sinner, how can God be just if he lets a vile sinner like me into his heaven? Only one way. If the penalty for my sin has been paid by an acceptable substitute. No other way. No other way. Jesus Christ died for our sins that God might declare us righteous, that he might justify us and remain just. And therefore the God tells us to use different languages that God established the law by having Jesus Christ bear the penalty of the law for those he was saving. The doctrine of justification by grace through faith establishes the law by showing that it is on the basis of a true righteousness, a righteousness that is the exact fulfillment of the law that we are justified. Justification by faith means by faith in Christ. And Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. Theologians usually talk about the death of Christ in two ways. Or his life, his work in two ways. First, his passive obedience. He submitted to the cross. He died 
undeservedly. He died for sins he did not commit. Secondly is his active obedience. Jesus Christ lived his life every day, every hour, every minute, every second, loving God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength. And when you believe on Jesus Christ, when you trust him, God imputes that righteousness to you. You get that? God imputes that righteousness to you. And then he imputes all of your sin to Christ. I, taught a, I told you this before. I, think I taught a group of pastors one time. I had a lesson I was teaching on justification. And I said, what is justification? One guy in the back had a seminary degree. Pipes up and says, just as if I'd never sinned. Oh, sit down, stupid. I didn't say that. I'm too nice. Listen, there will never be a time in heaven that you will think you've never sinned. You will know all the time you are there, you are a sinner saved by grace. And besides, if justification made you just as if you'd never sinned, how are you going to get into heaven? you got no positive righteousness. Remember the first and the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Even if you've never sinned, where's your righteousness? It is only by justification, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Holy Scriptures alone, that the law is established. Because God imputes all of my sin to Jesus Christ, and he imputes all of the righteousness of Christ to me. So that when he shall come with trumpet sound, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The day I preached my father's funeral, a man asked me, he said, don't you think that there is another way for God to forgive sin. And I said, is there anyone else who has done what Jesus has done, who in their active obedience kept the law of God perfectly, and in their passive obedience died for sinners on the cross, paying the penalty for sin? He said, well, no, I don't think so. That's it then. There ain't no other way to heaven. There is no other way. God saves us by imputing the actual righteousness of Christ to us. Someday, someday, I will enter heaven with a perfect righteousness. Not mine. Not mine. It's borrowed. <laughs> it's the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to me. I don't have it in myself. I'm a sinner. I'm fallen, I've fallen short of God's standard. But Jesus didn't fall short. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And his actual righteousness is by grace credited 
to our account. That's why Paul will say in Philippians, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him having a righteousness that is not my own, but that comes not from the law but through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. This real righteousness is possessed by those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so the gospel established the law. God can be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. So we've come to the end of this critically important section of the book of Romans, the very heart of the Bible. Think of what we've learned here. Number one, God has provided a righteousness of his own for men and women, a righteousness that we do not possess in ourselves. That's the very heart, the very theme of the word of God. Secondly, this righteousness is by grace. We do not deserve it. We're incapable of ever deserving it. It is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in dying for his people, redeeming them from their sin that has made this grace on God's part possible. We've seen that redemption describes the work of Jesus Christ in relation to ourselves. Propitiation describes the work of Jesus Christ in relation to the Father. He satisfied the righteous demand of the law, taking upon himself the wrath that we deserved. Justification describes the act by which God the Father declares us to have met the demand of the law on the basis of Christ's work for us. It is only because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that there is a Christian gospel. And then this righteousness which God has graciously provided becomes ours through simple faith. Believing and trusting God in regard to the work of Jesus Christ is the only way anyone can be saved. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. The question then becomes, have you believed? Have you trusted? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and was buried and rose the third day will you trust him for salvation will you trust him to remove you from the path of the wrath of a holy God that's the question let's pray together